0: Primary text this morning, we Exodus thirty-two to thirty-four. We won't read through all those chapters; that would take quite a bit of time. I was mildly disappointed. I, I forgot that we had singing night on the beginning of each Wednesday, so I think, wow, we'll, we'll read through what I'm going to be preaching on, but not so. We will this Wednesday, Lord willing. But um, we'll have about a few things that we'll go through, and we can't get as deep into the scripture as I would like, and hopefully help bog down and go too long. I hope I don't. But we'll we'll look at some cursory things, get some ideas. There's a lot of very large things in Exodus 32 through 34. There's a lot of big changes that happen. There's there's a lot of good things to look at. There's a lot of good things to think about. And we'll go ahead and get on into it. Where's my part of my clicker. Now, before we get into the text as a whole in exodus chapter 33 there's an event that happens which is very big for the children of levi and it's kind of it's a changing point for the people of levi from that point onward and it's it's a point where a curse is turned into a blessing we all remember the curse that was in genesis chapter 49 israel sits down to all of his sons and he determines their fate and this is what's said of simeon and levi simeon and levi are brothers Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not your soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. I think we all remember what happened there. Dinah, the only daughter of Israel, was defiled, and so Simeon and Levi plotted this idea to go through and circumcise all the men of that city that were of um, the prince who defiled their sister and then went through and killed them very soon after that and plundered and took all of their goods. And it's interesting to note, I, I just saw this this morning, what they did was they took the right of vengeance that God has and they took it for themselves. They didn't allow God to have his own vengeance. And it's interesting to see, that never occurs in the people of Levi ever again. They never step in between what God deserves. Because that's what they did. Simeon and Levi, they took what should have been God's. God would have protected Israel. He would have come back one day and destroyed the people who defiled Israel's daughter. It would have happened. It's happened throughout the Old Testament. When something bad happens to the children of Israel, there's a day of reckoning that comes. But Simeon and Levi didn't allow that to happen with it is interesting to note that the children of Levi never never mess with that again they never try and fool with God's plans again but moving on following the path of Levi we come to Moses and Aaron and from it's a really short amount of time It's interesting to see you can hold 400 years of the Bible in your hand Genesis 50 and Exodus 1 just like that and moves very quickly interesting to note all that sense of Moses' parents is in exodus chapter 2 an oddity exodus 2 verse 1 and this doesn't have a whole lot to do with our class but i just thought it was interesting get you real quick all it says is and a man of the house of levi went and took as a wife a daughter of levi just that simple it's just important to know that this is moses millennium. and so as we know god comes to moses after he's fled from egypt and in, he, he's in the land of jethro his father-in-law And God comes to him in the burning bush and lays out the plan, so to speak, lays it all out quite thoroughly. And as we know, Moses kind of rejects that. He feels like he isn't worthy to it. He feels like he doesn't have the words for it. And so we have Aaron come in as well. We, We see in verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well and look. He is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And so we see that the two heads of the Levite tribe, so to speak, as it is, are being selected to become the mouthpieces for God. I point this out because before now, all we've had in the history of Levi is that we'll have this curse. That the people of Levi will be scattered out. So it's interesting that Moses and Aaron are selected to be the ones to help guide the children of Israel as they go through this change. And we also see in verse 16 that Aaron will be the spokesman. So moving on, we get the people of Levi are put in even higher esteem. We see in Exodus 29, verses 7 through 9, this anointing that occurs. And it reads, And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, his head being Aaron's head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statue. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. This is an immense blessing. It's a perpetual statue. It is supposed to go on forever. Aaron and his sons will have the fat of the land, so to speak. When people come with their sacrifices, and it's an offering that isn't intended to be completely and wholly burnt up. Well, then it goes to the priest. And so they're able to have some of the best things because, you know, when the children of Israel, they didn't always do this, of course. But when they come, they bring their sacrifices. They're supposed to be to bring the best, the very best of the flock. So they kind of lay it on the line with the Lord, so to speak. They lay the best of the gene pool out to be sacrificed. And they're trusting in the Lord that he'll give back to them in that sense. But so the children of Levi here, or at least the children of Aaron specifically, get the best of the land. They're the ones which have that ability to be next to God, closest to God. And so we we see this curse in Genesis 49 starting to turn more and more, but we still aren't dealing with the tribe of Levi as a whole. But moving on, Exodus 32, 26 through 29. This is the end result of what happened in Exodus 32. And I, I'd like to, to read a little bit in Exodus 32. If you will please turn there. We have the accounts of the golden calf as we're quite familiar with it. Moses is evidently up on the mountain far too long. And so we'll begin reading and let's see. Verse 15 of chapter 32. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side, and on the other, they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made Burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. He scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. It's interesting that Joshua comes down from the mountain and he thinks it's the sound of war, and and they're thinking that okay maybe it's, it's not the sound of victory, it's not the sound of defeat. It must be. Completely awful sound. Sound like that. It's, it sounds like war as you're coming down the mountain. I can't imagine the amount of ruckus that would be. The amount of people moving around and running about. We're we'll reading the second verse 25. Aaron is condemned because he didn't restrain them. And it seems like people are just running all over the camp, acting just completely insane. They have completely gone wild with this. It, it's interesting. We we see this uh, kind of a parallel in Leviticus. Uh, we see in verse 19 and 20. Moses grinds up the calf and puts it in water, and he has the children of Israel drink it. One of the perhaps more difficult parts under the old law or just more difficult aspects is we see that if a husband suspects his wife has cheated on him, has done some sort of immorality, there's a ritual they undergo. They would go to the tabernacle and they would undergo this ritual. And the man would then tell a the priest, and I believe my wife has cheated on me. So they would get a bowl, and they would have water in it, and they would put dust from the bottom of the tabernacle into the bowl and stir it about. It'd be pretty thick. And what's said to be there is once she has drank that, if she lives, then she didn't commit the immorality. But if she dies, then well, she did. And that's, that's how you would know the distinction there. But it doesn't say this in the text itself, but you get the idea even... If she is innocent, just the thought that something's there is bitter and vile because she still has to drink that. It, it's a physical rep- representation of what's still going on in that marriage. And of course, we know marriage is a symbol for God and his people as a whole. We see Paul talking at in, the, I believe, the Corinthian letter. Speaking of marriage, I speak not of, of flesh, but of the kingdom of God. Speaking of what marriage truly is in large things, things. And so they've cr- committed immorality here and Moses is making them pay for it. And we'll read on a little bit more. We'll read starting in verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? The idea that maybe they did something so awful to Aaron that he intentionally put this massive stumbling block in front of them so that their entire relationship with God will be completely wrecked forever. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. So be completely to So For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire. And this calf came out, kind of like it was a magic trick. It just came out of the fire. I had no business with it. And this is when things really start to get serious. for 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, for their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the servants of Levi gathered themselves together to him. He does not specify tribe. he does not specify people, he does not specify anything except who is on the Lord's side, immediately the people of Levi come. Not Aaron's sons. It could have been Aaron's sons. But that's not specified either. It is the people of Levi. And they come, and we'll read on. And now We have it on the screen now. Verse 26, or excuse me, 27. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side, and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. So, do you imagine? You have people of the camp of Israel just running around like crazy within the camp. They're still in this fur after being worked up with golden calf and all that. They're thinking that this is their God, which would lead them now. And they're gone off into the some serious depravity here. And so, the people of Levi, it seems, go in and restore order. If anybody's running around acting a fool, stop it. Kill them dead, they are part of this idolatry, it's time to stop it. And in this process, the point is made, let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. These aren't passing relationships here. These are people who know each other. They grew up together. They had children at about the same time. They see each other all the time, and they had to stop. They had to do this. And so in verse 29, we have this blessing. The Levites are to consecrate themselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on them a blessing that day, for every man has opposed his son, his daughter, his brother. God recognizes that was incredibly difficult, and so he gives people Levi a blessing as a whole. And I'd like to see this is... 32, 33, and 34, this is where most of our lessons will come today, but I'd like to reach just a little bit further and see how that, that blessing panned out. See what happens there. I'd like to, if you would, turn to Numbers chapter 1. We'll do some quick reading through there, and we won't stay too long, but I'd like to make just a couple of points there. Numbers, Numbers chapter 1 of course, we know that in the beginning of the book of Numbers, we are numbering the people. That's not the entire book, but it is this portion. And we'll start reading in verse 1 of, of chapter 1 of Numbers. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacles meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually. From twenty years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. These are the names of the men who shall stand with you. From Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadur, from Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Zershadi, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Amenadab, but we're missing somebody. We should have Levi right there after Simeon. I want to notice one thing before we move on. Verse 3. From 20 years old and above all who are able to go to war. The people of Levi are not counted among those who go to war. Read on a little bit more. We go down to verse 19 the same chapter. As the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Now the children of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. From the children of Simeon, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, of those who were numbered, according to the number of the names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300 from the children of Gad. So we have that in verse 24, we skip down to Gad. Levi is not counted there once again. And so we know what happens to Levi if we read in verse 49. Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor take a census of them among the children of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, and over all the things that belong to it, they shall carry the tabernacle, and all its furnishings. They shall attend to it, and camp around the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levites shall take it down. when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents. Everyone buys own camp. Everyone buys own standards according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony that they may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel and the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses so they did so we have a situation where Levi is completely set apart from the rest of the children of Israel And, and this this point that we have in Exodus 32 seems to be the point there's no other event that occurs that would signify this change. Now, it's interesting to see that curse that God said would happen. It still happened. Levi was still scattered. And we may think at times that Levi got the bad end of the stick. Levi, it just didn't turn out right for him. That, that curse still had held, held through and it was a curse. And sure, they were still cursed in the idea that they only had cities throughout the land and so forth. But they had the greatest blessing. They seemed to be the people... comforted God. They seem to be the people, at the very least, they were the only people there who do not offend God just by their very presence. And so they would be around the tabernacle, and they would be the ones there that would be before God at all times. And if we're looking at it on the spiritual plane, not so much on the human plane, then we might say that the Levites are the most blessed of all tribes, because they are perpetually serving before God. That's the same thing that we want. We... We might ask the question. I've heard the question asked before just to provoke thought. If God came to us and said that I would give you anything that you wanted and I would get out of your life after that, would you take that? And of course the audience is no. Of course we want God in our lives. But it seems that's the way that everyone else except Levi was among the children of Israel. They wanted the land. They wanted all that. But they didn't want the presence of God. We are people after Levi's hearts, or at least the children of Levi. Levi seemed to mess it up early in Genesis. But we desire to have the presence of the Lord. That's, I mean, that's what heaven is. That's what we're going after. That is the end goal, to be among the presence of God. And so I think the Levites are the most blessed of all. So reaching just a bit further, I'd like to look at one more thing where, like, one more way they could have been blessed. From that. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14, the spies have just come back, they have reported on the land, 10 said that it is bad, 2 said that we could go through because we trust God, and so of course we know that the people of Israel side with the 10 who say and bring a bad report, and verses 29 through 30, we see what happens to them, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from twenty years old and above except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in I may be wrong in in this conclusion but I don't believe the Levites died in the wilderness they were not numbered among the people in the beginning of Numbers There's a separate, in Numbers chapter 4, there's a separate numbering that creates the people of Levi. It's completely different. The numberings that occur for the other tribes, it's the men of war who are counted. When the Levites are numbered, it's all the Levite males who are a month old and up. And it seems also in Numbers chapter 4 that God completely sets them apart. That The Levites are a completely separate people from the rest. Not that they're a completely different nation, but they're very different. There's distinctions that are drawn there. And I may be wrong. We can discuss this more afterwards if, if I'm wrong or if there's other evidence to come forward. But I, I don't think the Levites got involved. I don't think that, that that was how they ended. Because I don't think that they were involved in that event that caused this. They weren't involved in that rebellion. Anyway, moving on. And I'd be happy to discuss that later. But this massive curse that happened to Simeon we see Simeon essentially disintegrate among the children of Israel they they are not anymore they fall to pieces but Levi the younger brother even his inheritance remains and he is able to serve before God perpetually I'd like to come to the next idea that we, we see here in Exodus I'd like to turn back to Exodus in chapter 32 Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet know that you will not forgive their sin, excuse me, If you will forgive their sin, yet now, if you will forgive their sin, excuse me. But if not, I pray, allot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron made. It's interesting the plea that that Moses makes. This idea, he is going to make atonement for their sin. At at this moment in time, he's going to try. We discussed last week with Mr. Gary's sermon this idea of a propitiation, what is fitting. Moses is going to try and speak the fitting words to God so they may be forgiven. And this isn't the first time, and this isn't the last time, but this seems to be the most grievous time that this happens, whenever they turn extremely far away into idolatry, right next door to the Lord's presence on the mountain. This is a very big deal. And so Moses goes, and let's let's read this, what he says here All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold, these people. That's how he phrases it. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, once again, it is on them. But if not, if you will not forgive their sin, I pray, block me out of your book, which you have written. He was not involved in this sin. Moses knows he wasn't. He makes a clear distinction he was not. But he still lumps it himself in. That if they won't be saved as a whole, he doesn't wish to go forward as well. He doesn't want, as God suggests and wants to do multiple times he does not want God to start a new people through Moses through himself and so he wants he wants God's name to be blasphemed we see that throughout these interactions wherever the people of Israel fall Moses always brings up the point that he does not want the name of God to be blasphemed among the Egyptians or the Amalekites or the people around because he knows that if they see that the children of Israel fall in the wilderness they'll think that God was insufficient Jehovah God was not the one true God. And to define this idea a little more, I'd like to turn to the 106th Psalm. It's, I think, interesting and very enjoyable whenever we can use the Bible to define biblical events. And that's what happens exactly in Psalm 106. We have this interesting combination of Psalm 105, which has all the good events of Israel and all these promises laid out, and all these wonderful things are going to come to pass. Psalm 106, after Psalm 105, is almost the darker side of the story. You have the fall of Israel, all the things that gone wrong. Before we get to this, this part with Moses, let's read in Psalm 106, and verse 6. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders, and they did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. That that falls so far. We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. And how far it falls in verse 7. Our fathers did not understand, they did not remember, but they rebelled. And so quickly, it went... In just one verse, we have this this triplet, so to speak. They did not understand, they did not remember, but rebelled. I think that's a reminder for ourselves. We have to make sure that we understand the Word of God. We understand the implications of what it is because we can follow this path as well in verse 7. If we don't understand, then we won't remember. And if we don't remember, we will rebel. Moving on then now to this part concerning Moses. In verse 19, we'll read there. They made a calf in horror and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen one stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Let's let's think about the symbolism that's there, standing in the breach. I imagine that's a very small area, maybe the size of his walkway. And Moses stands in between them and God. And let's think about how many people are among the children of Israel right now. It's estimated to be about between two and four million. So Moses stands between the wrath of God and about two to four million people. And this idea of wrath here, the way that the word is originally written, I guess, and to be understood, it's the idea of something that has pressure that has built up over so much time and finally burst and it cannot be drawn back. It is something that, and once it is loose, there is no unleasing, unleashing, excuse me. And so Moses places himself in the middle. He could have been destroyed, but he wanted to fix that. He wanted to make sure that the children of Israel could continue on. And while we're in Psalm 106, I think this falls along very well with the idea. We'll read through. Let's see. We'll start in verse 28. This is along the same idea, and I think we can draw some good points off of this. Verse 28 in the same psalm. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. Now, this is a completely separate event than what we're looking at right now, but we can remember from other studies that what's happening now is the people are almost in the land, and they start committing a tremendous amount of immorality to the people of the land. They start taking in the daughters of the land, as they are told expressly not to on multiple occasions. And so Phineas stops it, and we know that one of the leaders of Gad, if I remember correctly, is going in with one of those women to commit immorality, and Phineas runs them both through with one spear. And maybe we might look back on it and say, was that the right thing to do? Or maybe it wasn't, because there's no confirmation within that story itself if it was or not. But it's pretty clear that it was accounting for righteousness to all generations forevermore. Now, I bring this up because uh, there was a commentator who was writing on this, and I, I believe his quote was, we can be thankful to God that we must only show the faith of Phineas and not the zeal. I'll say it one more time, that we can be thankful to God that we can only have the faith of Phineas and not the zeal, and he misses this a million miles. That's the reason that Phineas, that this is accounted to him to righteousness forever, is because he stood in the breach as well as Moses. He fixed the problem. He did not allow it to continue. That's the same reason the Levites were blessed, that's the same reason Moses was blessed, that's the same reason that Phineas was blessed throughout all time. Because they saw a lot of people doing a lot of evil and they stopped to the best of their ability. Now I think we can make the same application for ourselves, it's difficult to, to speak to certain circumstances, it's difficult to point out different things, but we know in our lives whenever we have to stand up and we have to speak, whether it's among people who are not of the faith or people who are, we have to be ready to stand up and stand in the breach and do the right thing. Moving on, though. Uh, this, I think this is probably, a, maybe not the most important idea that we have here, but it may be the most beautiful. This idea that that Moses presents to the Lord directly after the sin that we have with the golden calf. So we'll, we'll turn back next to chapter 33. We'll read there. Verse 12 through 15. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. This may seem out of place. The children of Israel have just done an Im- immeasurable sin. Harlotry is really what's called. We've, we've been defying that a lot in the minor prophets. Lately. They have cheated on God, so to speak, with the golden calf. And directly after this, This is Moses' plea. He wants the presence of the Lord to dwell with them, to be with them. And verse 14, God gives it to him. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And even though he's gotten the answer that he wants, Moses still presses. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Moses would rather die in the wilderness, not seeing the promised land, not seeing any of it, He'd rather die there and be with God than go on and have all the riches. He'd rather be completely destitute and have God than have anything else. Moving on though, we we can see this idea even better as we move verses 16 through 18. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Verse 16, Moses makes the point that the only way the people of Israel will be separate from everyone else is if they have God, if they follow after God. In verse 17, the Lord answered and said, okay, that's what we'll do. And it's interesting to note this time the tabernacle is not inside the camp of Israel at the moment. The tabernacle, where the dwelling of the Lord is, where God is, is outside the camp. It's only after this point that the tabernacle comes back into the camp, excuse me, it comes into the camp for the first time. It's as if what Moses says ups the ante even more. The presence of the Lord was not within the camp of Israel before, but now all that they do will be before God that and all the sin that they have as we'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament all the offense that they give to God will be before God right there it's not outside of camp, it's not far away it's, it is right there but what Moses is asking for he knows that the only true blessing is for the presence of God to dwell with us and that we be with God that's the point of it all that's the point of why we exist, we wish to be with God and then Moses has this request at the end here in verse 18. Please show me your glory. And so we'll see in this next section that what that is. and Why does Moses seek to see God's glory? What is that? What is he specifically asking for? Verses 19 through 23. And then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, while my glory passes by. And I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. I ran a lot over time that I meant to. I'm sorry. I think we can we can wrap up with this. I apologize, I'm, I'm sorry, but th- this is a point I think I, I really want to get It's interesting that God points out all these spiritual attributes of himself, and then refers to the physical. He speaks of goodness. He speaks of the name of the Lord. We'll, we'll notice in a lot of our Old Testament passages, we'll see Lord is spelled capitalized L-O-R-D, all capitalized. That, that stands for the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the, the covenant name of God, which is almost... Whenever we see that, we ought to think of everything that God has ever done up to that point. It's an idea of calling remembrance back to all the things that God has done. So the name of the Lord. God is gracious, compassionate. So what is Moses really asking to see? Is he asking to see the physical form of God? I don't think so. He's asking for the glory of the Lord. I don't think he wants to see God is this tall, looks like this, this is what his back looks like. I don't think that's, that's what we're going for here. And I don't even think either that he's thinking, maybe I I want to think of God. God is as the father, God is the creator, God is all these different things. That's that's not what he's going for either. It's like when we look at maybe our our wives or our husbands or our children, we don't see 511 brown hair, brown eyes. We see deeper than that. We see compassion, goodness, who they are truly. Moses desires to see who God truly is. He desires to see what God is. And that's truly what we must desire as well. Everything else, so to speak, is gravy. Everything else is secondary. This is the primary thing. This is why we live. This is why we want to go to heaven. Because we want to see who God is. We want to dwell in his presence. And all those things that we do to obey God are just so that we may have that we may come to have that. But this is the reason for all of it. In closing, we'll go ahead and skip to, a, to the last part. I'm sorry. We'll look at Acts 19 briefly, and then we'll close out. Now, we know today that we cannot physically see God. That I mean, even that same passage where God is speaking to Moses, nobody has seen my face. And we know today that miracles have ceased all things that were of the first century, and all those wonderful things that were happening, those have ceased. So what we have today to see God is his word. Let's look in Acts chapter 19 and see see how that should have bearing on us. We know in the beginning of, of chapter 19 that Paul encounters the men who only had John's baptism. And we'll start reading there. And when they were all right, and they were baptized afterwards, and he said to them, in verse three, "Into what thing were you baptized?" So they said into John's baptism. And Paul said, "John indeed, baptized through a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came up, came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, and prophesied. Now when the men were about twelve in all, and he went into, now the men were about twelve in all, excuse me, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So we have these people who have been converted, and they're doing this work now, they're going into the synagogues and they're reasoning. What are they reasoning and persuading about? What, what's their main objective? It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where we speak the word of God, where we endeavor to better see who God is. And in this chapter, we see they work miracles. They speak and correct false religious doctrine. They go and evangelize throughout all of Asia. But all of it is rooted in this idea of the kingdom of God. Because it is in the kingdom where we can actually see God's attributes. It's only if you're in the kingdom that you'll be able to, in the end, completely understand who God is. That's the purpose of it all. I guess it would be just as good a time day anything to close. If you are not in the right standing to see God in the end, what are you waiting for? What, What else are you waiting for? This is the purpose of life. If you don't seek after this, what else is worthwhile? I pray and hope that everybody in this room would have the heart of Moses, that we would rather die out in the wilderness with no water, no food, no clothing, than have God in the end. And have anything that we had, have any physical desires met here and now. I hope that we all have the right hearts. I know. I hope we all read the Holy Inspired Scriptures as if they are the Word of God, and seek to replicate ourselves after those, because that's how, in this life, we're able to have that. If you have any need of any sort.